0: Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. There comes the occasion that we should remind each other that the Lord is at hand. It is necessary for us to be constantly aware that the King is coming, that the Lord is at hand so that we can live our lives with His coming in front of us. His coming is our expectation. I should treat my spouse in such a way that I'm expecting the King to be coming. I should raise my children in such a way that I'm expecting the Lord is at hand. I should live life in such a way that I know, that I'm ever conscious, that the Lord is at hand. Because Jesus promised us that he is coming back, so we know that he is coming again. The Lord is at hand. So what should the posture of the believer be in this moment when we are living, waiting on his coming? How should we be seen? He said, let your reasonableness be shown to everyone. So let's just take a minute and walk through this idea of reasonableness. What does this word mean? How can we apply it into our lives? Like, does your definition of reasonableness match mine or does it match the gospel's? I don't know how you are, but I don't really enjoy conversations with unreasonable people. I don't like having dinner. I don't like having any meal. I don't like sharing a table or a moment with unreasonable people. I don't like being on the road with unreasonable people. I don't like standing in line with unreasonable people. But is that based on my definition is that absent God's definition, like, what is it? What does reasonableness mean? Because he says, look, the Lord is at hand. This is the most important thing in our lives is that the Lord is at hand. So the most important thing that the Lord is at hand is that thing that we have to know. What is our posture in the moment? That our reasonableness be shown to everyone. So what is reasonableness? When we go into the gospel, we begin to see this word sort of defined, characterized for us. In James chapter three and verse 17, it says the wisdom from above is first, pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere, for a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, in our Philippians text, this word is translated reasonableness. In James, the same word is translated gentle. Flanking this gentleness is being open to reason and peaceable. Like, what is our goal as we go through life? What is our goal when we have conversations? It says here that a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who want to make peace. I don't I don't know if you embrace this idea, but I have learned to embrace this idea. Not every thought that I have should be shared. (laughs) There are just some things we don't have to say. Like you might meet someone and you don't like them. Their personality type, maybe their temperament, it's just not a fit with your personality type or your temperament. But what would the purpose be of you saying, you know what, I don't like you? What would the purpose be of you saying, you know what, why why do you talk so fast? Why are you so loud? Why why can't you just sit still? Why? Like what what would be the benefit of that? Is the purpose of my conversation to make peace or is the purpose of my conversation just to complain? See, we have to make sure that we are living according to the lifestyle that God has told us to live. What did he say? Let your reasonableness, reasonableness be known. This is, this is this peacefulness that we find ourselves in conversations with people. How are we talking to people and why? Like, if, if the goal of my conversation is not to make peace, then I don't need to share the complaint that I have. Keep in mind, I have a lot of complaints. I, I live my life looking and seeing things that need to be complained about. I absolutely do. I find myself at a drive through They say, oh, go pull into space number two. I don't want to pull into space number two because when I pull into space number two, all I ordered was a drink. And what I know is you're just trying to get me through the line so it looks like you're serving people more quickly but you're not serving them more quickly so you're going to go send me to a parking spot and I'm going to watch the people behind me just drive, 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 drive while I'm waiting on my drink that's sitting on your counter and I know it's on your counter. I don't want to. But I'm not the manager. I've been asked to go pull in that space and rot while they forget my drink. (laughs) No, like, like, I see stuff. Like, I'm not saying that all of a sudden you're just gonna be okay about everything. It's not what I'm saying. The other day, I pulled out in front of somebody. I pull out in front of people all the time. Like, my, I I don't know if you can notice but I don't pause well. So stop signs, yield signs, pause signs, whatever you want to call them. I, there's this, I get gas at this Sunoco on Cleveland Heights, and there's a stop sign at the gas station, and two feet later a red light. I just roll through the stop and stop at the red light. I don't, I don't know why, it just seems redundant. Why am I stopping twice? So I just roll through, stop at the red light, and cut a guy off who's coming up to the red light. It happens all the time. Guy beside him, behind me like three days ago, he goes. And I wave. And he goes, like, okay, whatever, be a moron, I don't care. We had this little moment where we're just going to be reasonable. He's frustrated, I'm an idiot, we're going to move on. Like, that's not everything has to be a conflict. Not everything has to be stated. There are times where our words don't need to be spoken. But here's the thing when you can have a conversation with someone, and the goal of that conversation, the goal of that complaint is peace. You want to come to a place of peace, then you will have the attitude and you will have the words that will bring you to peace. If you do not have the attitude and the words that can bring the conversation to a place of peace, then it's not time for the conversation yet. There are those times we just have to sit back. What is that in the moment? That's reasonableness because we're not ready. What is the moment when we're speaking in peace, sowing seeds of peace? That's reasonableness as well. What is never reasonableness is when we find ourselves in a place engaging where it is not gentle, it is not peaceable, it's not open to reason, it is not full of mercy, it's not full of good fruits, it's not impartial, it's not sincere. In those moments, those are conversations that, don't need, to be hap- that they, they don't need to be happening. And it's all founded on what is first. He said, first, it's pure. So at the very beginning, it's not based on my opinion anyhow. It's what does God say about this? My, my opinion, and I dare say your opinion, um, they're not always based on the gospel. And so before we are willing to share what we think we have to first measure our thoughts with the gospel so that wisdom from above can come, and then in our conversation is first purity, that, that what we are saying is the word. He contrasts later on this idea of reasonableness in First Peter chapter um, two and verse 18. Said, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, both to those who are good and gentle, as well as those who are unjust. Now, this isn't in my point about a worker and a boss. We'll just ignore that for a minute. I just want to hold the back end of that text that just makes a contrast. That word gentle, again, same word, reasonable. It's not unjust. What is reasonable is going to be good. It's going to not be unjust. Injustice is never reasonable. Please understand that. Injustice is never reasonable. Why? Because what is reasonable is just. It's peaceable. It's full of mercy. Um, Sometimes you have to go back a few years to get a definition. And I think especially maybe in 2023, because we have come to a place where we really like to redefine things. We like to redefine who people are. We like to redefine what family is. We like to redefine what is good, what is evil. We just like, we like being very creative with definitions today. So sometimes to get an orthodox or a, 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 uh, an acceptable definition, we have to back up a few generations. And so um, there was the, a commentary on this text that was written by uh, Dr. Bernard Rosier under the leadership of Dr. Stanley Horton, and this was kind of what they had come up with, just kind of trying to get the full concept, the, the breadth of this word. And they said, it is tolerance for others when intolerance is justified. Tolerance for others when injustice, intolerance is justified. And I mean, can't we all speak to that? Haven't we all been in a place where we have a right to not tolerate someone and yet, and yet, we're being asked to? In this moment, we're being asked to let everyone see our reasonableness. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. You know, bigger than our ideas or our opinion Or our conversation in the matter is that the Lord is at hand. And so rather than saying something in the moment, in a heated moment, that might push someone away or alienate them from the gospel, we have to be considerate that we might be the only voice of the gospel in their life. And so if we can, by reasonableness, point them to Him, we have lived life considerate of this. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Now, who are we supposed to be living in front of in this way? He says, let everyone. Let everyone see your reasonableness. That's not just a few people. This is what we've done a little bit in, in the church world, just in general. When we say, like, reaching out to people or evangelism or outreach, we, a lot of times, will hear the word. We're not saying it, but we hear it like we're doing something for the poor. Like, what are, you, what, what are your outreach Ministries. It's usually, when people use that phrase, they're usually talking about the poor, helping the poor. Let me just say this. We should help the poor. We should share with the poor. We should give to the poor. Jesus said the poor you're going to have with you always. James said if you walk past somebody and they're broke and they don't have any food and you just say, hey, be warm, be filled, and you just keep right on walking, what good have you done? If you have something, help someone. Like, we absolutely should help people, especially those who are less fortunate than us. We have partnerships all over this city with ministries who help people who are not in a place to help themselves, whether it's Gospel Village or the Dream Center or Talbot House Ministries or Lighthouse Ministries. Like, we help people who are helping people who cannot help themselves. Why? Because we believe in helping the poor, thousand percent. But please understand that in Lakeland, Florida, just over 15% of our population lives in poverty. So our outreach, while it might be very good when we're reaching into poor communities or helping poor households, please understand that is negligent of the other 85% of the people in our community. What does that mean? Here's what that means. Our only outreach can't just be to the poor. It can't be. Because when we walk up to someone who's not poor and we say, hey, here's a backpack for your kid to go to school, all right? I don't need a backpack for my kid to go to school. Okay, well, here's a water. I don't need a water. I've got a Yeti cup full of ice with water. It's gonna be good for the next three hours. I even have a name monogrammed on it. I mean, I don't, but they do. Okay, well, how about a gift card to McDonald's? I don't need a gift card. Like, what, what, how are we going to open the door in conversation to people who can already help themselves in these matters? Like, they don't need our benevolence. What do they need? Oh, they need the power of a transformed life lived in front of them demonstrating what the gospel does. That's what they need. Because regardless of how much somebody has or does not have, there's always that hole in the soul that has not been filled by Jesus when they don't know him. And there's something about seeing somebody who has that hole filled where you recognize, oh wait, there is hope. Because what can happen when somebody just lives in a life and they're always around people who are the have the same brokenness that they have, they actually don't think there's hope. They actually don't think there's an answer. But when somebody who loves Jesus, who has their life centered on the gospel of God, gets in there presence, all of a sudden, because of proximity, the one with a hole says, wait, what do you have that I don't have? And we can just say, oh, I have Jesus. That's who I have. They don't need to see another miserable marriage. They have one. They don't need to see another set of parents that are just beyond exasperated with their kids. They already have that. What do they need to see? People who love each other as the gospel has told them to love each other. People who are raising their families in such a way that the gospel has told them to raise their families. People who are running businesses according to the kindness and the mercy that the gospel says we should lead with. Are we leading our companies with servant leadership or are we leading our companies with the same goal that the world has? Like, I want what we do to actually stand out. I want what we do to actually be different. If somebody from this house is a young adult Adult, a single, and they sit down with some other young adult or single, like, How's your life? Oh, my life's awesome. Great. What are your goals? Their goals are in alignment with the gospel, not in alignment with the world. Because when you sit with somebody who's in the world and your goals look just like their goals, what's the difference? But when somebody hears your goal has a different perspective than their goal and they see a joy flowing from you and they see a peace upon you, all of a sudden, what are they going to do? They're going to think about what their life is. They're gonna consider the difference in you and them and then they're gonna ask about it. They're gonna ask about it. Why? Because the power of a transformed life has no equal, it has no match. So he's saying, I want your reasonableness to be seen by everyone, not just the 15%, but by the other 85%. See, let me me just, this is gonna sound arrogant. Um, I don't want it to sound arrogant. I just wanna be able to testify for a minute. Is it okay? That just on occasion we testify. Like sometimes, I get it, I get it. Somebody says, oh man, I'm just having it's just hard. And we want to go, yeah, I mean, it's hard for me too. And we like, we try and commiserate by trying to find something about our life that's whatever, so we can somehow, somehow sympathize with someone else's pain. I get it. It's a, it's a good life skill. Like somebody shows up broke. It's probably not a good idea. I don't know, man. I got plenty. <laughs> but, but I think it's okay on, on occasion if we could just testify about the goodness of God. Because here's the thing. All I've been doing for the last 25 years is figuring out how to take the gospel and copy and paste into my life. Like when I think about what I should do, what I should think about, how I should behave, where is that in the gospel, copy, and paste. Okay, I'm married. Now, how can I do this thing called marriage? What's the, what's the handbook? I don't care about all the other books that have been written, what I should do here, here. No, what does the gospel say about marriage? How can I live my life according to the gospel? Copy and paste. I'm raising these kids, trying to get these kids across the finish line. I want these kids to love Jesus. Like, what does the gospel say is required of me? Not what the world says should be done. What does the gospel say about raising kids? What does the gospel say? about relationships. And so I just spent my life trying to figure out what does the gospel say about this? Filter out all the noise of the world. Copy, paste. And here's what I can tell you is that 25 years later, see, I fit that description when Paul said, such were some of you. And he talked about all these things that people do who live out in the world. I did about all of them a lot. I can't say a hundred percent of them on the list. I failed, but probably 98%. But then there came a time where the gospel had to be center. And from that time to now, here's what I know. I have peace. I am full of joy. I love the life that is centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love my wife I love seeing her, talking with her, playing with her. I love being around my wife. I love my kids. I love my kids when they're awful. I love my kids when they're awesome. Because when they're awful, we have conversations. When they're awesome, we have celebrations. What is that? That's living in the center of the gospel. So even when it's a hard conversation, when the gospel demands it, there's peace and there's joy in the conversation. So what I love about parenting is that it can be done according to the gospel. and there's gospel. There's joy. I love the calling that God has given me. There is satisfaction about getting up every day and going, doing the thing that God has gifted you and called you to do. There are people that do things that are a lot more successful. There are people who do things that may look a whole lot better. But I don't find my joy in their success. I don't find my joy in what looks better. I find my joy in doing what God has called me to do. And so every single day, I just get up and I just worship Jesus on my way to work. I just worship. Jesus driving my car. I don't care if you have a nicer car. I don't care if your car is garbage. I thank Jesus worshiping in my car. I enjoy what I do. I enjoy who I do it with. And when I drive home, there is just a gladness in my heart. I can't wait to get in the door, see that miserable dog that meets me at the door every single time I come home and then go yell for my precious kids. Where are they? What have they been doing? Let's sit down. Let's have dinner. Let's tell stories. I love life. Like, I love life, I love it. Whatever addictions I had by the power of God, they're broken, I don't live in addictions. I don't deal with things. I just sit in the center of the gospel of God with the armor of God on. And when stuff comes, I just say no, no. Scroll, change, turn, move, get away. Why, because there's something greater. I just desire to live in the greater. I have decided to live in the greater. And here's the thing. This is what I promise you. My joy is full. My my joy is full. And here's the thing. Because my joy is full, full I can't actually hang out with as many people who would like to hang out with me. I have to say no all the time. Why? Because of the goodness of God in the land of the living because there's something different about a life that has been transformed by the gospel. And when you live that life, here's what I promise you. You will be a testimony to everyone whose life doesn't look like that. Why? Because the Lord is good and his mercy Indoors forever, forever. So was it easy the first day? Nope. How about the first year? Yeah. By year five? Yeah, it's getting pretty easy. 25 years removed? Um, it's just good. I can look back And I can see people who didn't make the same decision that I made. And here's what they don't have. The joy or the peace that I have. Why? Because he is my joy. He is my peace. My hope is in him. I'm living because the Lord is at hand. And when I live that way, if you live that way, there will be the fullness of satisfaction. I promise you. Why? Because that's the promise of the gospel. That's the promise of the gospel. It's that peace, that fulfillment, that satisfaction. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they'll be what? Satisfied. And so when we live this way, this reasonable way before everyone, because the Lord is at hand, how do we see that modeled in the life of Jesus? What did he do? Like when we go outside of just the 15%, what about the other 85? Like how did he live in front of them? let's start with a familiar story and we'll go into another familiar story. There was a moment when a group of uh, religious leaders, they found a couple who were in the middle of immorality, right in the middle of the act. And they apparently separated them, sent the guy wherever they send him, didn't seem like much happened to him, but they decided to drag the lady in and bring her before Jesus. And all these guys say, okay, Jesus... She was found in the very act of immorality. Now, the law says that we should stone her. And here, this is what I love about reasonable answers. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then reasonable or gentle, open to reason. So Jesus says, yes, that is exactly what the law says, and you're exactly right. So here's what we're gonna do. Whoever is without sin, you go ahead and throw the first stone. Like we we talked this as if he, he hand, no, no, he said, you're, you're right. Throw stoner. You just have to be without sin to judge somebody in their sin. So you who are without sin, go ahead and judge her in her sin. And then he gave him a minute to think about it. And he just stooped down. And I have no idea what he was doing. I don't even, like, I don't know. Look like he's just killing time. Just giving him a minute. Have you ever asked somebody about something and they look at you and you're like, here, I'll give you a minute. You kind of walk off so they can talk amongst each other and make a decision. This is what Jesus, he wasn't gonna go anywhere, so he just squatted down. He just, okay. And then it says that the older men, they dropped their stones and they left first. Let me just very respectfully because we're all the time, all the time, complaining about young people, all the time. Now, I'm just gonna complain about older people for a minute. (laughs) It was the older ones who left first, who led the way in what was reasonable. I would just ask, Everyone older, because it's 23, that means we're stepping into 24. 24 is an election season. I'm just going to ask the older people in this room, could you please lead in reasonableness during the next election? Could you please? Because how people were led in the last season was depressing. And many of the ones who were leading the charge were older. I know, everybody laughs when we pick on young people. We can call them snowflakes, everybody will clap. But when we get real honest, then all of a sudden, everybody's looking at me like, I can't believe you just said that. No, no, can we, can, can the older people please lead with reasonableness next time? Because I didn't see a whole lot last time. I'm begging. So in this moment, it was the older ones who led the way in reasonableness. They dropped their rocks and they walked up and said, this isn't right. This isn't the way to go. This isn't the heart of the law. We're not going to participate in this. And they led the way so that then the younger ones could say, okay, I'm going to follow their example. There is a reason that you are the elder among us. It is to be an example of reasonableness for every single person who is younger than you. So I am beseeching you, please be an example of reasonableness. This is what we see. So Jesus is still just doing his thing. They drop their rocks, they walk off. And then in um, John chapter eight and verse 10, it says that he stood up. And then he said to her, Woman, where are they? Now don't get offended by woman. That's just Middle Eastern for ma'am. Ma'am, where are they? And um, she says, They're not here. He says, Is there no one to condemn you? She says, No, not one. And then Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Go. Neither do I. If they don't condemn you, I'm not going to condemn you, go. And this is where our generation today, and that's everybody in this room, those of us alive today, this is as far as we've gotten in our comfort level. But reasonableness keeps on talking. He didn't just say, okay, I don't condemn you, now go. What else did he say? Oh, from now on, sin no more. Like, not just go, you're pardoned, keep doing what you've always been doing, just know I forgive you every single time, live like a complete idiot forever, and then I'll come get you because I'm full of grace and I'm full of mercy. This, this is our message, right? Like this That's the message we preach all the time. But it wasn't his message. His message was go. Oh, and from now on, sin no more. That has to be our message that is reasonable in front of the people that we have opportunity to speak to. All right, let's talk about his relationship and interaction with a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a rich guy. We all love to complain about rich people. Everybody complains about rich people. I think rich people are pretty cool. I don't know. I kind of like looking at their cars, I like looking at their houses. It's just, it's just cool. I heard this the other day. Maybe it's not funny to you. I thought it was hysterical. Somebody told a rich guy they didn't like the color of his Bugatti. He said, what color is your Bugatti? (laughs) I I don't know. I thought that was hilarious. (laughs) I'm like, ah, that's pretty good. Yeah. So Zacchaeus was a rich guy. Um, But how he got his riches was basically by overtaxing people and they didn't like that. They didn't like being overtaxed. Nobody likes the idea of being overtaxed, where it's like 10 bucks to get in, and like, that's oh, 15. like, it says it's 10, it's 15. You're desperate, you pay the 15, you just get in, but you can't stand that guy for doing it, right? I don't know. Has anybody driven into Georgia lately? Nobody? Seriously? No, like for real, who has been to Georgia in the last year you just drove through? Okay, thanks. That's, it had to be more. It has to be more because I-75 is always like a parking lot going north. Okay, so here's the thing, you get into Georgia and there there's taxes on gasoline. I'm gonna make fun of tax collectors for a minute. I'm just telling y'all what's going on here. I'm, I'm gonna just trash tax collectors, so be okay with it. You go into Georgia, if you pull over, you know all of a sudden gas gets cheaper. Fascinating, right? Gas gets cheaper, why? because Florida puts an extra tax of 35 cents per gallon on, a, on gas. But you drive into Georgia, it's, you don't pay that extra tax on every gallon. And so you get there, you sit around, you spend a few days, you, pin, you spend less in gas, you're driving, you got like a quarter of a tank, you're in Valdosta, you're like, oh, I'll fill up in Lake City. Don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Go, you just stop right there in Valdosta, because here's why. As soon as you cross that Florida line, that tax man's coming at you and you're gonna be on empty and that light's gonna be flashing and you're desperate and you have to pull over and then he is gonna steal from you 35 extra cents per gallon of gas. I'm the only one this bothers. (laughs) Clearly everyone enjoys this. Okay, well that's what Zacchaeus was doing to people and they didn't like him. And so now Jesus comes to town and Zacchaeus decides that he wants to see Jesus. He wants to be in the presence of Jesus. He didn't want to just hear the story. He didn't just want somebody telling. No, he wanted to be in the presence of Jesus. So he runs and he climbs up in a tree. And it was hard for him to climb up in a tree because he wasn't an extremely tall guy, but he was gonna do whatever was necessary to be in the presence of Jesus. And, and I might just say for those of you, no, we'll pick on the online people because you're all in the room, you're fine. Those of you online are like, well, oh, it's just pretty hard to get to church. No, it's not hard to get to church. It's not hard. The roads are all open. The weather was nice. It's easy actually to get to church. Say, well, I don't have a car. We have a bus stop right on Main Street, right in front of the church. There are buses that get here. I see people that park their bikes over at the bike rack. I see people who walk to church. It is not difficult to get to church. It's not hard. It's not hard. It's difficult to get through TSA. It's not difficult to get to church. Church is easy. It's easy to get to church. So people are like, oh, it's just hard to get there. No, it's not hard to get there. Oh, I just, I had a pretty, pretty long, long Saturday. So who cares? Get here. Okay, so Zacchaeus got here. He climbed up the tree. Jesus sees him. And then he says, hey, come on down. I'm going to go to your house today. And then what did he do? He said he hurried down. When God gives us a directive, could we learn to hurry? Like all the time, we're going this way. God says, turn around. If God says, turn around, there's not one more thing going that way for you. There's nothing. Well, but I thought if I just know, if he says, turn around, there's nothing else there. Going along, God says, turn around. I'll be right there. I'm not. I'm one of the slow ones. Just have a confessional real quick. Part of my therapy with you this morning. God says, turn around. I will. I will turn around. I'm going to turn around. I'm turning around. Okay. No, turn around, man. Turn around. Okay, so Zacchaeus hurries down. They go to his house. They're in his house. Jesus is having conversation with him. He's in the presence of Jesus. Jesus doesn't tell him to do anything. He's just in his presence. Because of the conviction of the power of God on the life of Jesus, Zacchaeus, in Luke chapter 19, verse 8, it says, He stood up, and he says... Lord behold of all the goods that I have I give half to the poor and then if I have defrauded any one of anything I will restore it fourfold That means he's going to take whatever he stole, multiply it by four, and return it. There are some people in this house that the devil has stolen from you, and according to the word of God, there is a return that is coming back to you. When the enemy steals from you, God will multiply it, and he'll put the answer right back in your lap. They were stolen from Do you think they expected him to show up and give them four times back? God will do the impossible. And then Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Salvation has come to this house. For this man also is a son of Abraham. And the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus wasn't just seeking Zacchaeus to build his brand of Jesus' friend of sinners. He wasn't just building up this idea that Jesus was a friend of tax collectors. He wasn't just trying to make everybody think more of Jesus or think better of Jesus or think Jesus is just one of these men of the people. What he was doing was seeking the lost for the purpose of what? To save them. I came to seek the lost and save the lost. It wasn't a photo op moment. It was so that Zacchaeus could experience salvation. He wasn't just giving mercy so that he could make all the religious people mad with the lady that was caught in adultery. His purpose was that she might go and sin no more. And what happens in our conversations in the Christian world is we find ourselves on one side or the other. We're either on the extremely conservative side and we won't even find ourselves ever in the presence of someone who needs Jesus which is a complete disaster, because who else are they going to see? Or, or we're gonna just never live according to the gospel and hang out with people who don't believe like we believe, so that we can do what they do, and then we're gonna give the excuse. Oh, I'm just seeking the lost. No, you're not. You're using the gospel as an excuse to be stupid. Because if you are finding yourself constantly in the presence of people, hanging out with people and never bringing them into the house of the Lord, never seeking not just to be, but to save, you're missing the greatest opportunity of that relationship. You're not there to be like them. You are there to convince them to be like you. That's why God puts you in that moment. That's why God gave you that relationship so that they could see him in you and they could be transformed. Like that's the point. And so when when we grasp this, we are very open and longing for our reasonableness to be seen by everyone. Now, why is that? Because the Lord is at hand. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. Therefore, we are called to live like He is coming back. And we are called to demonstrate to others a life that lets them know that they need to get ready because he is coming back. Jesus is going to return. Now, let's just take 10 minutes to walk through that process because we we see this in Revelation chapters six through eight. And right out of the gate, this is based on the gospel. This is my opinion. Anytime something in the gospel isn't like super clear, we, we create opinions that builds doctrines or theologies and there are differing opinions on the coming of the Lord. This is my opinion on the coming of the Lord. There are people who share my opinion. There are people who do not share my opinion. That's the only disclaimer you're gonna get. Now I'm just gonna give you what I feel like this is saying, Revelation chapter six through eight. We see this moment where in heaven there is the call for one to come forward who is worthy to open the seal that begins the end of days. And when the call goes forth, no one stands up, no one appears. And so there begins to be weeping in heaven. And John, who's seeing this in a vision, begins to weep. And the angel who's next to him says, hang on, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John looks up, And he sees a lamb as though it has been slain. And the lamb as though it had been slain, is there in a moment, but he wasn't there in the previous moment. Where was he in the previous moment? In the previous moment, the lamb that had been slain was the word who became flesh. When the word became flesh, he dwelt among us. He gave his life to die for our sins, and then he descended into the lower parts of the earth that he might pay the penalty of death, hell and the grave. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was raised from the dead. And so John is seeing this moment when the lamb who was slain ascended to his father that he might step into and take his place back at the throne because no one was worthy to approach the throne of God except the lamb who was God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That word became the lamb who gave his life for us. Now he, the lamb who had conquered death, ascended. Now he's approaching the throne of God. Now God hands him a seal and the only one who's worthy to open the seal, the only one who paid the penalty of sin for you and me, he opens the seal. And when he does, there is released the spirit of Antichrist on the earth. Now I'm saying that because it was seen as a man riding on a white horse who was like a ruler who went about conquering and to conquer. If we fast forward all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, we will see not the Antichrist, but Jesus Christ on a horse, a white horse, and he comes and he lands on the earth. And when he lands on the earth, he opens his mouth. There is no battle. There are no swords. There is no whatever. All he does is speak and evil in a moment is vanquished because evil cannot stand in the presence of God. Jesus doesn't have to fight. All he does is open his mouth. So this is what happens at the end of the time, but this is at the beginning of the time. It's not the Christ, it is a false Christ. It's fascinating when you look at this person that was the the Caesar actually after the death of Jesus, the first one who came, uh, Caligula. It's fascinating when you look at his life and how awful he was. It said that he was doing pretty good. He lowered taxes and was doing some things, and then just all of a sudden he got sick and changed. There was just a, a complete shift in him. He called himself a god. He sold his sisters out to give people favors. He would overcome rulers, and he would have their families watch him while they killed their family. Like the guy was wretched. Oh, and he loved his white horse. His white horse had a marble stable. His white horse he ordained as a priest. It's just a neat little story if you're into a false leader riding on a white horse and you think there's any significance to that and so from that moment as John said the spirit of antichrist is on the earth and there will be false christs plural and there will be false prophets plural in this age called the end of days and so that's the time that we live in and there were other uh, seals that were open a dark horse a pale horse a red horse wars and rumors of wars and famines And sometimes we're like, oh, we haven't seen anything like that. Really? We haven't seen anything like that? Did you pay attention to World War II? It's like 60 million people died, 6 million Jews. Just 50 years ago, the leader of China starved 30 million of his own people. Like, starved them out. Like, we we don't think there are Antichrist leaders out and about. Lenin, Mussolini, Stalin, Hitler. All flowing in a spirit of Antichrist. Saddam Hussein, that guy. Remember that guy? What about Vladimir Putin? I'm sure he's awesome. Like false Christs, false leaders who are claiming they have the answer. They have no answer. You don't have the answer when you're killing people, when you're creating famine. False Christs have been out there. And so this all began this age that would be the end of days. And then there's this fifth seal that is opened and they're all the saints of God underneath the throne. And they said, when are you gonna make it all right? When are you gonna fix this? And he says, in a little while. And I think that's where we are right now. We're in that in a little while space. But there is a command for us in this little while space. And we've gotten distracted and we always wanna talk about governments and we wanna talk about the mark of the beast and we wanna talk about what's gonna happen in the tribulation. Could I just let you know, we're not going to see any of that because there's a sixth seal that gets opened up and when it does, the sky rolls back and everybody on the earth sees what's going on in the heavens, but Jesus doesn't come down yet, but everybody gets to see Jesus. And then when these people who knew about Jesus but didn't believe in Jesus, who were from the tribe of every single tribe of Israel Thousands of them, 144,000 of them, they see him. They suddenly believe they're marked. But there is the absence of the church on the earth. Where is the church on the earth? Oh, we just have to keep reading because at the end of that sixth seal, there's gathered around the throne of God. Every single nation, every single tribe, there is a number that is too large to even mention. And we're all gathered around saying, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. How did we get from here to there? Oh, it was the Apostle Paul who already explained it in Thessalonians. He says, don't you worry about this. Yes, Jesus is coming back and it will be like a thief to those who aren't expecting him. But to those who are expecting him, this is your great hope. You need to be looking for him. It won't catch you by surprise because there's going to be the sound of a trumpet and an angel and then the heavens are going to open up and we're going to see Jesus, but Jesus isn't going to come down. What Jesus is going to do is call to himself, his Holy Spirit, who's the only one holding all the hell from happening. But when he calls forth his spirit, everyone who's alive unto God, all of the sudden we who are alive and remain we are caught up together to meet him in the air and then all those people who are under the throne at the fifth seal their bodies are lifted up spiritual bodies where they are joined with us and Jesus in the clouds where we will be with him forever and ever and ever And then they open the seventh seal and there's rest in heaven. Quiet in heaven. Why? Because Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 9 it says, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So that when they enter God's rest, they will rest from their works as God did from His seventh seal the seventh day the Sabbath that is the reward of our time on the earth working for him this is no time for rest Proverbs says a little rest a little folding of the hands and then poverty comes on you like a thief this is not a time to be lazy this is not a time to sleep This is a time for the church to wake up, not wake up and pay attention to governments or false leaders or what could be a mark of the beast. We're never gonna see it, it doesn't matter. I'm not looking for the antichrist. I'm looking for Jesus. I'm not telling people to be prepared for the end of days that they'll never live through. I'm telling people to be prepared for the one who is coming because the Lord is at Jesus Christ is coming back. And there is a message that we have that is called the gospel. And it is a message of power. Jesus said, here's what I'm telling you to do. Pray to the Lord for the harvest. That they would have laborers in that harvest. And then he gave them power. And they had power over unclean spirits. And they cast out devils. And they healed the sick. And they healed the afflicted. This is the power that's been given to us. This is the power not to discern government conspiracies. The power is healing. The power is deliverance. The power is the gospel. And here's the thing. When people see our reasonableness, man, they will flood to be in the presence of God. When your life demonstrates the reasonableness that flows from the power of the gospel. There will be not an altar on the earth that is not full of the one who is lost that is now found. This is our call. This is our call. This is our purpose. Let your reasonableness be seen by others, by all others, by everyone, for the Lord is at hand.